Hello and welcome to Matanzer's A Baseball Podcast. I'm Max Tanzer, of course, as always, joined alongside Ryan Medeiros. We got a ton to break down and discuss for you guys today as we're just less than a week away from pitchers and catchers report for spring training. I mean, it's it came quick, Ryan. You know, I thought it was going to be a long off season after that short 60-game uh, campaign, but it's come by fast, and I, I, I might be the most excited I've been in a while for spring training. And that's saying something because I'm always very excited. Oh, absolutely, Max. I'm right there with you. I was talking to you after class the other day, and I had to admit I was daydreaming a little bit during class, imagining some of the baseball. And when baseball first came back last summer, we were excited then, but I think we're even more excited now. Yeah, what always gets me, too, for some reason, is I love the ESPN broadcast. And MLB posted a social media post of the four uh, opening day games slated for the ESPN telecast. That that got me excited. I, I'm ready for it. I'm rolling. Unfortunately, the Mariners not on it like they were in 2019 with your Red Sox, but we'll get back there someday. But anyway, let's get right into it right here. Speaking of both our Mariners and your Red Sox, uh, they made some moves this week here, starting with Ken Giles signing a two-year deal with the Mariners, which is very interesting because he did undergo Tommy John surgery on October 1st of last year. Uh, so he probably won't pitch in 2021. If he does, it's probably late in the season. But for a guy that could really bolster the back end of your pen in 2022, a year the Mariners look to make some uh, big steps forward. I think this is a tremendous move. You'll have Andres Munoz back healthy as well. Um, so I like this move a lot. It doesn't help them right now per se, but building up to the future, it's a great move. Oh, I love this move for your team, Max. And the reason why, and you've mentioned this multiple times, is because the Mariners aren't really looking to compete this season. Obviously, it would be you know, a luxury if they were able to compete and be in the wild card race towards the end of the season. But, you know, 2022 is the season where you might expect the Mariners to have kind of their next step. And that's when Giles, you said, is going to make his biggest impact. I want to go back to his 2019 season. He only pitched in four games in 2020. Wasn't a great sample for him. But in 2019, he had a 1.87 ERA, 53 games with the Blue Jays, had 23 saves and 83 strikeouts in 53 innings. That was good enough for a 2.44 ERA plus. So fantastic numbers for Giles. Obviously, he's got that volatile back into the bullpen kind of crazy mentality. You know, you go back to him punching himself <laughs> in the face uh, when he's with the Astros. But you know that fiery that that fiery um, back into the bullpen mentality is exactly what a team like the Mariners is going to want heading into uh, 2022. When you hope they're taking that next step. No doubt, and I know there's a lot of Mariners fans disappointed in the front office this year just because they expected some big moves. I know Jerry Depoto even came out at the beginning of this offseason saying that he expects to compete in 2021. Uh, and, and look, I'm disappointed too. Obviously, I want it to speed up, but the reality of it is here is the Mariners have a ton of question marks in terms of their prospects, and I think they should prioritize getting those guys playing time. Um, so sure, it would be nice to go grab a Kyle Schwarber or a Jock Peterson to you know, fill the gap to Jared Kelnick. But, you know, you know, I've talked about this week, Ryan, a guy like Jake Fraley deserves some playing time is uh, a number eight prospect, I believe, for the Mariners right now. And what's the number two ranked prospect organization in Major League Baseball, according uh, to uh, baseball perspective this week. So uh, I think giving these guys some playing time is important. And like you said, Giles was electric in 2019. So if they can get anything close to that, plus Munoz coming back from TJ should be healthy in midseason. Then your guys like Del Plain and Wyatt Mills as well coming up uh, should be ready for a competitive season in 2022, hopefully. All right, let's move to your Red Sox now. They've been pretty active the last few weeks here, and they continued that, trading Andrew Benatendi to the Kansas City Royals in exchange for Franchi Cordero from the 
Royals right-handed pitcher Josh Winkowski from the Mets. Three players to be named later, two from the Kansas City Royals and one from the Mets. And then the Mets will be receiving Khalil Lee, the number eight prospect at the Mets at that time, or at the Royals at that time. A mouthful right there, Ryan. A lot of moves. I know some people were disappointed about Andrew Benatendi being traded, of course, one of the bigger names of the Red Sox for the last couple of years, but you have some different thoughts on that. Yeah, I wasn't too upset with this move. Look, Kyle Bloom has been trying to do two main things this year, and that is build versatility and to build depth in the organization, whether that's at the big league level. He stockpiled a lot of major league ready pitching, which they did not have last year. And in the minor league level, as we see in this deal, four players coming through minor league prospect type players. Obviously, one only one of those guys is known. That's Winkowski. And then the other three are to players to be named later, which could be really interesting options. I think, you know, the reason why these players to be named later are not named now is because, you know, the Mets and the Royals maybe gave a list of players that they'd be willing to deal. And they give this list to the Red Sox and they let their scouts go out. And we're going to have a minor league season this year. So it's going to give them a chance to scout these guys with their own eyes after not being able to last year. So I think it's a really valuable thing to have this player to be named later sort of addition in the deal. But look, I mean... Franchi Cordero is another huge piece, probably the biggest piece in this deal. Obviously, we don't know three of the players that are coming in return, but I'd be surprised if any of them had a higher ceiling than Cordero. This is a guy who hits the ball very hard, and he's a true dynamic athlete, both in the field, at the plate, uh, just in general. Obviously, he's not that much younger than Benintendi, but I think he's got a higher ceiling, whereas Benintendi might have a higher floor just based on the experience he's had at the big league level. But uh, Cordero's biggest issue is staying healthy. Obviously, that's a, ma a big concern for him. But if he's on the field, I think it's a good job by the Red Sox to take a flyer on a guy who maybe, like I said, has a higher ceiling than Benintendi. Yeah, no doubt. Made his major league debut when he was 22 years old. So as you said, has struggled to stay on the field as he's going to be entering his 26-age season. Has only played 95 games in that span. Uh, so I think getting an opportunity to play every day will be nice. How do you think the Red Sox will organize their outfield now, now that you don't have Ben Attendee, Manning left, and you could have Verdugo in center? I know you have some thoughts on that. Yeah, this is really interesting. When I first heard that Cordero was coming over, I was excited because I said, okay, this is a guy who can man center field every day. That might not be the case. His sprint speed has actually declined every season since he's gotten into the big league. So you'd have to wonder if that maybe that has to do with health. I still believe that this guy, like I said, is a dynamic athlete who's totally capable of handling center field duties at Fenway in one of the toughest outfields in the big leagues. Right field isn't much easier. So you know, that could be a potential uh, fit as well. But I think Verdugo in right field, Cordero in center field, supposedly if he's healthy, and then Renfro in left where he can use his arm to maybe throw guys out at second on balls off the wall. I think that's a huge asset there. I think Verdugo is more than capable of handling every outfield position. You know, he's not the most elite defender in center field in my opinion, but I think he can be serviceable out there. But if you can have him in right, as an above-average right fielder, well above-average right fielder. Cordero as an above-average center fielder, if he's healthy. And Renfro, like I said, with that arm and left, that's probably the best outfield situation that you could come up with. They actually signed another guy that we'll talk about soon that could potentially see some of the reps in left field. But out of those three guys, that's the alignment that I see as being the best fit. 
Yeah, before we get to him, I just wanted to touch on Khalil Lee a little bit here, uh, being sent from the Royals to the Mets. He's a pretty decent prospect here for the Mets, who really, it appears, jumped in at the last minute right here, uh, sending over a player to be named Ledger in the right-handed pitcher in Winkowski. Uh, but Lee has decent numbers at the minor league level. As we said, was a top-10 prospect in the Royals farm system. Got on base a lot in 2019 in AA. Uh at a clip of 363, excuse me, right there. Did strike out a lot, 154 strikeouts in that season, but is a guy that could provide a lot of speed off the bench, stole 53 bases in that season. Uh, and what I was reading on, it could be a guy who could have an impact for the Mets off the bench in September. Yeah, I really like this move for the Mets, and I think, you know, as a team that kind of just jumped into this deal, it seems like, you know, they basically just acquired this pitching prospect in the Mats trade, and Mats was kind of, you know, a wash at this point for them. They got this guy and then flipped him basically for one of a, a decent outfield prospect. They didn't have a lot of depth in their outfield farm systems. This was a great move for them. But I think would be a, we would be amiss if we didn't discuss in this trade Andrew Benintendi. Obviously, he's <laughs> the main guy, and uh, oddly enough, we haven't really talked about him yet. So let me address this. Um, I do believe Benintendi will bounce back. This is a guy who's hit at pretty much every level he's played at. He was the Golden Spikes guy with Arkansas, 7th overall pick. I loved him when he was with the Red Sox. He was a great asset. Obviously, things took a turn for the worse after the 2018 season where he had a 123 OPS+. Plus. They won the World Series that year. We're one of the best teams in baseball history, arguably, that season. Uh, in 2019, he's took a step back to about league average at the plate with decent defense in the outfield. So he's about, you know, an above average player, but, you know, at the plate, he's about league average. And then 2020 was just abysmal, 52 plate appearances. It seemed like he was banged up, had some rib injuries, actually had some broken ribs. Uh, those reports just surf uh, surfaced. You know, we talked about how he actually had some fractures in his rib cage. Batted 103. You know, with a 27 OPS plus, he really, really struggled. It was unfortunate to watch as a Red Sox fan. I would have been happy if he was with the Red Sox this year. I would have been a believer that he would bounce back. Like I said, he's had the pedigree throughout his career. I believe he will still bounce back with the Royals, albeit in a tougher situation, tougher park to hit in, a bigger outfield demand. But, you know, if anybody's going to bounce back, it's going to be a guy like Benintendi, who through his whole baseball career has been incredibly successful. You know, I'm just at the perspective as a Red Sox fan, you know, let this deal play out. I think a lot of Red Sox fans are too quick to judge. Obviously, Benintendi's been a fan favorite. You know, he's got the long flowing locks. He's, you know, got that young player's mentality that a lot of people really like. But, you know, like I said, Bloom is doing a good job. He's building the farm system. He's trying to build a sustainable winner like the Dodgers, like the Yankees. You know, the Red Sox in the past have been a team that are either really high and play really well or they play really, really crappy. They're at the bottom of the division. Last year was an example of it. Thank God we had a shortened season in 2020 because it was not going to be pretty for the Red Sox in the long haul. Yeah, and, it, you know, it wasn't very pretty for the Royals either. And I think we should shed some light on them too before we head over to the next move for the Sox. Just looking at the moves they've made this offseason, obviously going out and bringing in Mike Miner, uh, Mike Lay Taylor, a good, spot, or a good defender in center field for them. If you look at their lineup, you know, include Carlos Santana, who they signed this year. They have some pretty good options. You know, you got Santana, Perez, and Soler in the middle of your order, which is very underlooked. Ben Attendi now, Michael A. Taylor in center, Alberto Mondesi and Whit Merrifield at the top. A pretty decent lineup for a Royals team that 
probably is still a couple years out until their you know big name prospects come up and play an everyday role, but are still trying to compete in a division that still has the Cleveland Indians and the Chicago White Sox and the Minnesota Twins. So I got to tip my cap to them for trying to push forward and put a competitive team on the field here as they've had a very, very underlooked offseason for sure. Alrighty, let's move back to your Red Sox now, signing Marlon Gonzalez to a one-year $3 million deal, basically right after they traded away Ben Attendee. As you mentioned, Gonzalez will probably get some starts in left field, but has a lot of versatility. Uh, Hein Bloom bringing in both Gonzalez and Kike Hernandez for some versatility. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, you mentioned it right there. Versatility. That's a huge thing Bloom has tried to do this offseason. You know, Gonzalez struggled at the plate. You know, to put it nicely, last year in 2020, 68 OPS plus. That's, you know, 32% below league average. He still is versatile. Like you said, that's the important piece. He's going to get starts in left field. He's still a guy at the plate who can be about league average, play a lot of positions. And, you know, average at bats at the plate are good value bullet bats if you're a bench player like Gonzalez has been pretty much his entire career. Let's look at his 2019 numbers. That's the sample size. That's probably a little bit more telling than in 2020. Obviously, only 53 games in 2020. 2019, he had 114 games played, 19 doubles, 15 home runs, hit 264, low on base, 322, 414 slugging. It was good enough for a 94 OPS+. plus. The year before, he was a 101 OPS+. plus. And the outlier year was obviously the 2020 or the 2017 season, 146 OPS plus. I'm assuming there was some trash can shenanigans <laughs> going on that contributed to his success that season. But you know, like like we said, the versatility is the valuable thing. And if you can provide a league average bat with good versatility, he can play a lot of positions. He's going to spell Dahlbeck at first against some tough right-handers. He's going to play some second base where he's been a valuable defender. He's going to alleviate, you know, some of Hernandez's at bats against tough righties at second base. He can play a little third against lefties if you want to bench Devers a couple games or even put him at the DH spot. He can play both corner outfield positions. He might be able to play a little bit of shortstop. I can't imagine Bogarts is going to need too many days off at that position. But, you know, like I said, versatility, depth, that's what Bloom's trying to do this offseason. No doubt, and he's a switch hitter too, just to add on top of that, plus experience going deep into the postseason as well, both with the Twins and the Astros the last few years. So a good move for them, quiet, but still should help them in 2021. Another quiet move for those Texas Rangers who are rebuilding this offseason have assigned Brock Holt, another former Red Sox, to a minor league deal. Uh, a good deal for the Rangers here. Again, Brock Holt's a guy who's bounced around uh, the last couple years, started with the Brewers last season, then with the Nationals, and now here with the Rangers. Uh, a Rangers team that obviously is now very young, just shipped over Elvis Andrews to Oakland, so that'll probably move Kiner Falefa to shortstop. Opens a spot for Brock Holt to be another utility guy and get some starts here with the Rangers this season if they do uh, promote him to the big league level at any point this year. Yeah, and this was a good job by Brock Holt just making this decision to come to Texas. I think I heard that he had a couple major league offers on the table, but he saw that the Rangers would have his best you know, opportunity to get a starting position there at third base. He took a chance with them, and he's going to get a chance to make the big league roster and you know, get that money. Uh, I think Holt's interesting because coming into the 2020 season, you know, he had his free agent year coming out of 2019, he was kind of coveted. You know, he was a he was a good guy, really versatile. He had a 101 OPS plus in 2019, 109 in 2018. So like we said, a league average bat combined with a lot of versatility. Holt can play all the infield positions, pretty much all the outfield positions. He's played pretty much every position besides 
catcher. I believe he's even gotten a couple pitching appearances in his big league career. So that versatility combined, if he can get back to league average with the bat, can be a really valuable thing for the Texas Rangers, who probably aren't going to be competitive this year. But, you know, getting that guy is going to help get you a couple more wins. No doubt, and a good clubhouse presence as well. Another guy who's very versatile. I mean, we got we got the versatility uh, utility man show here today. It's Drupal Cabrera signing a one-year $1.75 million deal uh, with the Arizona Diamondbacks after coming off of uh, a decent 2020, 753 OPS at 242, eight homers, 31 RBIs. But if you go back to 2019, at least with his stint with the Nationals in those 39 or 38 games, had a 969 OPS, evened out to 783 if you include his 93 games with the Rangers. So a guy at the age of 34 going on 35 has still been able to be very productive and can play multiple positions fairly well. Not the same back with his days with the Indians back you know, in the early 2010s, but still a good valuable piece here for uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks. Yeah, and he's about a league average bat, 98 OPS plus in 2020. 2019, he had a 98 as well. So league average bat, veteran guy, can play pretty much all the infield positions. Was very, very good with the Washington Nationals in the second half of 2019. He had a 146 OPS plus, so really good numbers with them. Helped them to win the World Series in 19. And yeah, great veteran guy, great addition by the Diamondbacks. A big one I thought here that didn't get as much attention, that might be because it's not officially official yet, there's still no numbers on it, but Mark Melanson signing a deal with the San Diego Padres here to help out the Apple Pen, which was good last season. And Mark Melanson, a guy who has been good with the Braves the last couple of years after signing a big deal with the Giants, uh, and it didn't pan out well after leaving, uh, it was the Washington Nationals after being traded over to the Pirates, didn't start out well with his career with the Giants, then heads over to the Atlanta Braves and starts to build himself back up here. Had a good postseason last year. Did not give up one single earned run in the 2020 postseason. So he brings veteran postseason experience and another good, talented right-handed arm to this Padres bullpen that just continues to get better uh, day after day. Yeah, I imagine he'll slide into the closer's role for the Padres. Pomeranz, obviously, is probably the best reliever in their bullpen statistics-wise but I think he profiles better in a setup role where he can throw multi-inning appearances. Melanson, like you said, very underlooked. I think this deal was kind of unheralded. Uh, you look at Melanson's stats last year. He's a pitch-to-contact guy, only had 14 strikeouts in 22 and two-thirds innings, but he had a 2.78 ERA. So you might think, okay, why did he not get the payday that people might be thinking? Or why did he not get the attention that some people might think this deal should garner? Well, he had a 3.72 FIP last year, so that's fielding independent pitching. That counts just the strikeouts, walks, home runs, etc. And that no balls in play. So, you know, that's not a great look, but you look at his expected ERA with StatCast, so you can take that into account as well. And it was 3.41, so higher than his 2.78, but that's still a very good number and a great veteran guy at the back end of the bullpen. I think Balance will do a fine job, especially in a big ballpark like Petco. No doubt about that. Interesting, too, just looking at the FIP in 19, a 3.86 ERA uh, when he was with the Braves with a FIP of 1.83. Now, again, that was a smaller sample size, just 23 of the 66 total games he pitched, but interesting numbers right there. And, yeah, like you said, I, I think that he'll be fine. And there's a guy who has a pedigree of doing well besides that one 2017 season in which he struggled with the Giants. Besides that, if you look at the numbers here, everything is basically below four. Uh, so is a guy that I think will... Uh, be very, very, very dependable at the back end of that Padres bullpen. Alrighty, next one, another reliever move here in the National League West. It's Jake McGee, the lefty, signing a two-year, $7 million deal 
uh, with the San Francisco Giants. Uh, former Dodger heading over to San Francisco was very good last year for LA. 2.66 ERA in 20 and one third of an innings pitch. Struck out a lot of batters as well. 33 in that span. Relies a lot on that fastball. Uh, pitched well in the postseason last year as well. A decent move here for the Giants, who also, like the Royals, have quietly had a very productive offseason. Yeah, McGee is one of the most polarizing relief pitchers in baseball. Not too long ago, in you know early 2010s, he was a dominant pitcher with the Tampa Bay Rays. Let's look at his 2012 season. He had a 1.95 ERA, 69 appearances. I'm just looking through these numbers. 90 strikeouts in 2014 with a 1.89 ERA and 73 appearances. Fantastic numbers. Signs a huge contract with the Rockies and, quite frankly, it was a disaster. He had a 4.73 ERA in 2016. He had a 3.61, which wasn't too bad. He bounced back in 2017. 2018, he had a 6.49 in 61 appearances. So, disastrous results, quite frankly. Then he comes to the Dodgers. 2020, you know, gets released by the Rockies. You know, he's no longer with them. Same division, different team. Comes back, drops a 2.66 ERA, 24 appearances, like you mentioned. 33 strikeouts in 20 and a third innings, has a 161 ERA plus. Fantastic numbers. And for a guy who pretty much only throws fastballs, you know, that's great results. Look at his StatCast profile. Again, this kind of shows you why he's a polarizing guy. Rank, ranks first percent in exit velocity and fourth percent in hard hit percentage. Remember, like we'd mentioned, you want to be up in the 90s and the uh, 98s, 97s if you want to be in the top tier. First and fourth percent is about as bad as you get. He gets hit very hard, but that's when he gets hit. It's like a Josh Hader type deal. Hader gets hit very hard as well. But again, keyword when he gets hit. You know, he has a 97th percentile. That's where you want to be in ERA plus, expected ERA rather. Expected batting average, he's 90th percentile. K percentage, 99th. That's about as good as you get right there. He strikes out a ton of batters. He limits contact. But when he gets hit, he gets hit hard. But if you're not getting hit, like, like McGee proved last year, you can be very, very successful. No doubt about that. The Dodgers, another former uh, lefty, this time a lefty specialist heading away from L.A. That's Adam Kolarik, along with minor league outfielder Cody Thomas going to the Oakland Athletics in exchange for Sheldon Noose and minor league right-hander Gus Varland here. Kolarik, another lefty, as I mentioned, has put up good numbers in the past here. He's a guy who's more primarily towards left-handers as a specialist, but again, with the new three batter limited, it will be interesting to see how uh, the A's handle him this season, but an A's bullpen that already has Jake Diekman uh, should bolster that a little bit as well. Yeah, and this is interesting, but we're following up former Dodgers reliever Jake McGee with former Dodgers reliever Adam Kalerick because they're two completely different relievers. Kalerick pitched to contact, very low strikeout numbers. He's not going to overpower you. 13 strikeouts in 19 innings. That's not very great strikeout numbers right there. But he had a .95 ERA, so you're thinking, okay, that's interesting. What does he do so well? He gets very weak contact. That's exactly what Cleric does. He's a ground ball guy. He's going to limit lefties. He's going to induce weak contact, and that's exactly what he does. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned 095 ERA in 2020 and 077 in 2019 after he was acquired from the Tampa Bay Rays. So the Dodgers doing their uh, dividends in turning these guys into dominant relievers. And again, is a guy that isn't pitching multiple inner innings generally and is more likely going to face one or two batters at most, but still gets the job done. Dodgers weren't done yet, trading another reliever, right-handed pitcher Dylan Floro to the Miami Marlins in exchange for Alex Avicia and right-handed pitcher Kyle Hertz, who was the fifth-round pick by 
the Marlins in 2020. Um, interesting move here. Again, it looks like the Dodgers are just trying to clear some of the relievers and money off of their payroll right now, especially after all the moves they've made. And look, they can afford to do so because of the amount of depth they have. They'll probably have two or three guys who are eligible to be in a starting rotation of most teams who will be relieving next year, guys like Dustin May, Urias, so forth, Gonsolin. So they can afford to do this, and they're able to get some good uh, prospect depth added. Vesia, a guy who's been known to have an electric fastball, the most vertical movement on his fastball in all of professional baseball last year, or in the last couple years, excuse me. So a cool move for them. Uh, and Floro is a guy, along with Anthony Bass this offseason for the Marlins, that can help out that bullpen, especially after losing a guy like Brandon Kinsler. Yeah, and Floro, you mentioned him back in, I think, uh, go, doing a little throwback here. I remember we were doing a postseason show and you talked about how great Floro had been and how you thought he could be in the mix for ninth inning. And then I quickly corrected you and pointed out that he had struggled mightily. I just remember that Thank going you. back. So there was a there was a good throwback moment there. I just remember whenever I think of Floro, that, that's what popped into my head. Uh, Whenever but, I think of Flora, I think of the Bach off against the Mariners, so I'd like to keep it that way. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's a better, much better memory for you anyways. But look, 2.59 ERA in 2020, so you had a point in that he had pitched well that season. 19 strikeouts in 24 in the third inning, so he's not a huge strikeout guy, but he gets the job done regardless and will be a nice piece at the back end of the Marlins bullpen. For sure. Another Marlins move here, a great one in my opinion for a guy who was very good in the short season last year, Adam Duvall, outfielder to a one-year $2 million deal with a mutual option for 2022 that's worth $7 million with a $3 million buyout. A guy who had a tremendous, tremendous back into the season last year, um, and I think for the Marlins helps out that offense a little bit. Again, adding these veteran pieces in for a very young team, a similar approach to what they did last year. Again, I don't think that their success from last year is sustainable going into 2021 but it's good to see a team that is young on the rise uh, making moves to try and make that push forward and still be competitive in what's arguably the best division in major league baseball yeah and this is exactly what baseball needs you know these bottom of the barrel teams like the marlins arguably in their division being competitive or at least trying to be competitive it's there's nothing worse than when a team completely tanks like the pirates and it's just an embarrassment to baseball I think what the Marlins are trying to do is at least remain competitive. They might win 75 games, but at least if you're not losing 100, you know, you can at least say, hey, we didn't lose 100 games because no one likes to look at the standings and see 100 losses, uh, regardless if you were trying to be competitive or trying to tank or whatever. But look, I mean, Adam Duvall is a great addition for them. He was 86 percentile in expected slugging last year so. You know, those power numbers are real. 16 home runs, 8 doubles, going to be a home run type hitter. He hit 31 home runs back in 17. He was an all-star in 2016, hit 33 home runs. He's going to be, at his best, he's a low on base, high slug guy. You know, even in those years when he hit those 30 home runs, his on base was right around or just below 300, which is not very good. But when you're slugging 498 and 480 in last year, 532, you can live with those low on base numbers because he's going to drive in runs and drive balls out of the ballpark. 113 OPS plus in, in 2020, 117 in 2019 in the small sample size. But Adam Duvall is going to hit balls out of the ballpark. Like I said, he's going to drive in runs. And on a young Marlins team with an inexperienced outfield, he'll be a nice addition. Yeah, through 32 games, his first 32 games last year in July and August, left the yard five times. 
That was hitting about 230 or so. Then jump into September, the last month of the season, in 25 games, hit 11 home runs, OPS 925. So a tremendous end to this season for him, and hopefully he can carry that into 2021 with the Marlins. Alrighty, let's move a little bit south-north. I don't even know the geography in Florida. I tried to get fancy there, but we'll see. We're moving to Tampa Bay. That's all we know here. Tampa Bay Rays making a couple moves this week, adding some starting pitching depth, which they needed a lot after losing both Charlie Morton and Blake Snell this offseason. Start off with Rich Hill here, signing a one-year, $2.5 million deal. Hill Minus the injuries, had a pretty solid 2020, a 3.03 ERA with a whip of 1.1 in 38 and two-thirds of an innings pitch. As he always does, limits a lot of hard contact. And I love this fit here because he's a guy who was revitalized through analytics with the Red Sox in 2015, as you know. Dropped the sinker and increased the four-seam and curveball usage. And then is going to a team in the Tampa Bay Rays who probably... Um, uses analytics the most out of any team in Major League Baseball. And for a guy who's 41 years old, is still getting it done. I like this move. I don't think it's a key replacement for a guy like Charlie Morton or Blake Snell, but helps them a lot uh, in the back end of that rotation. Yeah, you say you like the move as I visibly cringe over here looking at Baseball 7 as I look at the 5.08 expected ERA. That's a major <laughs> warning sign right there. While I do think... It was a small sample size, eight starts for Hill in 2020. That's 38 and two-thirds innings pitch. He only struck out 31, so the strikeout numbers were down. Clearly, he got hit pretty hard. He was uh, actually really didn't. I'm looking right here, 88th percentile on hard hit percentage, uh, 77th in exit velocity. But for some reason, those expected ERA numbers, the expected batter average, slugging, barrel percentage, K percentage, walk percentage, they're all very low. The fastball velocity is very low as well, but, you know, if he incorporates that curveball, if people can't or, or hitters can't figure it out, I think he can still be a successful pitcher. But I think the reason why he didn't get, you know, a ton of the attention that maybe he thought he might get this offseason, even with that sparkling 303 ERA, I think a lot of teams are starting to look more into the in-depth expected analytics and they look at that five expected ERA and maybe you know like I did cringe a little bit yeah no for sure you bring up a good point uh, but he'll eat some innings for them next year and I think will still be a solid guy if healthy that's a big question too and remember he is on the other side of 40 uh, but another move they made another guy who's benefited a lot through analytics Colin McHugh when he was over with the Astros and when he's healthy he's a very dependable pitcher as well the race sending him to a one-year 1.8 million dollar deal did not pitch at all in 2020 here but getting an opportunity to pitch with the Rays uh, what do you think about this one I think it's interesting. I think it's, you know, a buy low pick, and this is exact, exactly what Tampa Bay does. They're a small market team. They sign guys to buy low deals, and if they pitch well, then great. The Rays look really smart. If they don't pitch well, then no one says anything because they weren't signed to a big deal to begin with, so it doesn't really matter. I think McHugh is interesting. He, he had a really, really good season in 2018 coming out of the bullpen for Houston. 199 ERA, struck out 94 batters in 72 in the third innings. Fantastic numbers. He's, it just goes to show you he's got great stuff. He, been, he he was a pretty solid starter in 2017. He didn't pitch that much because he got hurt, but 3.55 ERA in 12 starts, 62 strikeouts in 63 in a third inning. So he was striking out about a, a batter per inning. He jumped to the bullpen. He had really good stuff there. His stuff played up in the bullpen, evidently. 82 strikeouts in 74 in a third innings in 2019, 4.7 ERA. So he took a step back. With Houston. He was kind of a swing man. Eight games started, 35 games total. 
So he came out of the bullpen a little bit, and those strikeout numbers were kind of in the middle of where he was when he was pitching in the rotation and the bullpen. So maybe the Rays looked at those bullpen numbers and said, hey, this is a guy we can put out of the bullpen, can give us some length, maybe bring him in after an opener. His stuff seemed to play up well in the bullpen looking at these numbers. So maybe, you know, if you bring in somebody like a Fairbanks or whoever they have, have them come out in the first inning and come in firing. McHugh can come in and his stuff can play up coming out of the bullpen. Maybe have him go through a shorter appearance, maybe only three or four innings like the Rays like to do. Go through the order once or twice, no more than three. You know how a Tampa works. But uh, I, think that would, I think that would bode well for McHugh, who seemed to have his stuff play up in the pen. Yeah, and very similar to Hill in many ways. Doesn't throw hard, but limits a lot of hard contact. Obviously, those two generally correlate. Uh, and then a high fastball spin and a really good curveball as well. Uh, so I think there will be some versatility in him and how they use him next year. Uh, but again, with a rotation that's fairly thin in starters, I wouldn't say, you know, McHugh has a guaranteed spot in the rotation. We'll probably start in the pen, and then they'll see where it goes from there. Uh, but another move here, let's move over to the National League Central. Jake Arrieta returning to the Chicago Cubs on a one-year $6 million deal. And while the years with the Phillies weren't what the Phillies expected still, uh, was able to put up decent numbers, per se. Uh, but with the Cubs, obviously that's where the high expectations came. In 2015, won the Cy Young Award uh, with a 22-6 and record and 177 ERA. Obviously has a couple of no-hitters as well. Uh, has, was one of the most dominant pitchers in baseball at his peak, and then obviously fell off a little bit with the Phillies. Injuries were a problem as well. Uh, but I like this move for the Cubs here, bringing back a familiar face for what's a difficult offseason. Obviously, they didn't want to lose you, Darvish. I think it helps the fans out a little bit too here to bring back a face that they loved and adored back in their World Series 2016 season. Yeah, quite honestly, it's hard to say anything positive about this deal unless Arietta <laughs> has a total turnaround and I mean, bounces back. I don't, th- I don't think it's like... $6 million compared to what Hill got. I, I, Hill didn't get... What, what was he, Hill's deal again for the money? Two and a it half wasn't million. $2.5 million for Hill. You give $6 million to Arietta. All the advanced statistics show that his performance is down. He had a 5.08 ERA. I think you were putting it kindly when you said he pitched decent with the Phillies because after his first season in 18, he was pretty bad. He had a 4.64 and 24 starts in 19. My fault. I, I miss, I, I give you credit for trying to be optimistic about this, well, but you know, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be the downer here for Cubs fans who might be excited to see a popular face return, but. I just don't see it. He's only struck out 32 batters in 44 and a third innings last year. He's not limiting hard contact. He's 38th percentile in exit velocity, 43rd in hard hit percentage. So middle of the road, a little bit below average there. I think he's getting hit hard. He doesn't strike out a lot of batters. The the fastball velocity is down. The spin is down. The curve spin is the only positive thing here. 68th percentile in the curve spin. But he doesn't seem to be fooling any batters anymore. He's definitely got to change something like we talked about Lester a few weeks ago. If he wants to continue his career, he's got to make a uh, dr- drastic change. Well, we'll see how it works. All righty, last move here. Yadier Molina, another uh, move in the National League Central here. Yachty, I can't envision him in another uniform. I know there were some rumors about maybe the Yankees and other organizations, but the Cardinals and Molina reunite once again just about a week after Adam Wainwright and the Cardinals reunite. This will be a one-year, $9 million deal here for Yachty and Molina. Uh, not too much to say besides the fact that I think it was just had to happen. Yep, he's the Cardinals' second manager, basically, here. <laughs> 
He'll come in. He'll be their on-field player manager, so to speak. No one handles a pitching staff better than Molina. The statistics show it. We talk about, you know, the non-tangible statistics in the game. How can you say that Molina is so valuable when you look at his numbers? 81 OPS plus in 2020, 87 in 2019. He doesn't run well. He's not the best fielder anymore, but he's a game manager. And I think the statistic that shows it best is the Cardinals pitcher's ERA when he's behind the plate versus one of their youngers options or backup options behind the plate. It's a stark difference. And, you know, I think Molina is that game manager and, you know, it's intangible, but clearly it works. For sure. All righty. Before we wrap up today, we're going to take a look at the American League and National League projected standings via baseball prospectus for 2021. We won't go through all of them, but some of the interesting notes here. Obviously, the National League East is one that we should definitely touch on here. They have the Mets winning the National League East at a record of 96 and 66, and then following the Nationals at 85 and 77, Phillies at 83 and 79, and Braves at 82 and 20. So a big gap. They expect the Mets to run away with this division, but the bigger storyline here in this one for me is the Atlanta Braves finishing 82 and 80 in fourth place in the National League East and nothing against the Phillies or the Nationals who both have had pretty good off seasons the Braves however in my opinion you could argue are favorites to win the National League East and are the biggest threat to the New York Mets but Dakota does have them in fourth yeah, I'm just looking here and shaking my head. It's hard to take these Dakota protections seriously when you look at the Atlanta Braves in fourth place. I'm sorry. They are arguably the favorites to win the division, as you mentioned. They're right up there with the Mets. I still think they're better than the Mets. They have a core of Ronald Acuna, Freddie Freeman, Ozzie Albies. They brought back Ozuna. They have Darno, who hit very well last year. Swanson is a great player. Remind me if I'm missing anybody. The rotation is fantastic. They have good young pitching. They brought in some veteran arms into the mix. They have great pitching depth, as we had talked about the other day. Let's go through it. Max Freed, Ian Anderson, Charlie Morton. Um, Drew Smiley is going to be at the back end. I'm prob- Mike Soroka is coming back off of injury. We're talking about Kyle Wright and Bryce Wilson, who played an interesting role. They were the three and four starters in the postseason on a Braves team that was banged up. They'll slot into the bullpen to bring some interesting innings and maybe mix in some spot starts there. They've got great depth in the rotation. Their bullpen is taking a little bit of a step back, but their offense is just as good as last year, and they were fantastic offensively last year. I don't know what exactly goes into these Pakoda projections, but... They're wrong, in my opinion. I don't see how you can say the Braves are a fourth-place team. I don't see it either, especially I do think they're better than the Phillies and the Nationals, both. I mean, the Nationals and Phillies are good teams. And also that's interesting, too, is that they think the Mets are significantly better than all those three teams. I would expect the Braves to at least be in the same neighborhood as the Mets in that case. Other interesting one, they have the Cardinals at 81 and 81, 500 in the National League Central, and the Brewers at 89 and 73, winning that division. I know you have some good thoughts on the Brewers here. Yeah, the Brewers have a great pitching rotation, both in the bullpen and the starting rotation. Let's go through the starting rotation. They've got Brandon Woodruff, who's a bona fide ace at this point, been a great pitcher the past couple of years. He's just got to stay healthy consistently. Corbin Burns came on the scene last year, was fantastic. I think he's in for a breakout season if he can stay healthy and be consistent. You know, they always find innings no matter what. There's a couple other pitchers that will mix in well through their rotation. And their bullpen, I think they have the th- best bullpen trio in the big leagues. And that's saying something. You don't, I don't throw that term around lightly. Josh Hader's arguably the best reliever in baseball behind Liam Hendricks. 
They have Devin Williams, who won the Rookie of the Year last year, which is really hard to do as a reliever. He's one of the only relievers ever to do it. And Freddie Peralta is very, very underlooked. And he's a guy who can, you can stretch out to multi-innings like they have with Josh Hader in the past. He's, Peralta's a former starter. I hope for the first time the Brewers actually you know, pin a roll to Peralta this year because I think he can really flourish out of the pen. They've tried to use him as a swingman in both the rotation and the bullpen in the past. Just leave him in the bullpen. Let this guy throw bullets down the plate. He has a nasty breaking ball. He strikes out a ton of batters. I think he can be one of the best relievers in baseball as well. So that bullpen trio alone makes the Brewers a really scary team, especially if they can get a lot of leads going into the late innings. I think their their offense is underlooked. I mean, they had the former MVP, Christian Yelich, in their lineup. They have solid pieces around him. Lorenzo Cain's coming back. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. I think maybe they'll bring Ryan Braun back. That's interesting. He's still out there. But they have good options. I think Avasael Garcia is underlooked. He could bounce back. You know, you get the point. The Brewers have a good, solid team here. I think they could maybe bring in one more piece. Justin Turner's been thrown around a little bit, so that could bump them over 90 wins in the Pakoda projections here. But, uh, you know, I think they that would make them a more interesting team. I think it's the Cardinals one I'm not as upset about. Here, let me just turn to this real quick. I'll ask you your thoughts on it in a second. But, you know, they added Nolan Arenado, but their offense is not fantastic besides that. They don't have a whole lot of depth, but... The, the Cardinals had that intangible Cardinal way. They always find ways to win. It's almost like Oakland at this point, who doesn't always look fantastic on paper, but they find ways to win. By the end of the season, they'll be upper 80s, 90s, and wins no matter what. So uh, I can understand why the projections have them a little bit lower just based off the stats, but the, the Braves one to me is still indefensible. Yeah, and I think that it's more realistic the Cardinals finish in third place this year than the Braves finish in fourth. I, I like the Cardinals. I think, as you said, they do the little things right. The defense, the pitching has obviously been very good the last couple of years. And, you know, I was super excited about the Arenado move because it does give them a bona fide bat and gives Goldschmidt some protection here. But those two alone probably can't do it by themselves, and they're probably going to need a couple other guys to step up if they do want to push for that division. Um, reading about or looking at some of the other couple of divisions here, the National League West, the Padres and the Dodgers, the big race there. Dodgers projected to win that division at 103 wins, the Padres 96. The East, the Yankees 97 wins, followed by the Rays at 86 after an offseason in which it appears they've taken a step back. Uh, your Red Sox at 80 wins, the Blue Jays in third place at 85. The Central, the Twins winning that one, 91 wins. The Indians getting some love at 86, even without Francisco Lindor. And the White Sox, interestingly enough, after a very productive offseason in which they got better and made major strides last year, are projected to be in third place with 83 wins. I think that one's a little bit too harsh, but we'll see how that goes. And then the American League West, the Astros, clear front runners in that case, 93 wins. And then some love for the Angels. They project the Angels to host the wild card game next year uh, at 87 wins, which I'd love to see. We'll see if that works out. Then the A's, who again haven't been incredibly active this offseason, uh, at 80 and 82 in third place. So any of those you wanted to talk about before we wrap up? Yeah, two of them here. The Angels one I'll just touch upon briefly. This is the Mike Trout-Anthony Rendon effect. The projections always bump the Angels up just off of Mike Trout in general because he's always projected for nine wins above replacement or whatever crazy number because he's the best player by far in baseball, and we can say that as many times as we want. I think uh, we talk about him all the time. But 
Uh, and Anthony Rendon, again, one of the top 10 players, arguably, in baseball. So he's always projected for about five, six wins above replacement. So those two guys alone, like I said, push them way above the echelon and the projections every year. Uh, the rotation is better, though. So I think 87 wins is a realistic expectation. Uh, we talked about last week how their pitching is underrated with new additions such as Cobb and Quintana, in addition to Heaney, Canning, Bundy. Good young pitchers. I think they'll be interesting. But the White Sox, this is this goes along with the Braves. I just don't understand. Maybe the Braves more so than the White Sox because they've had that experience in past years and have won 90-plus games the past few years, really. The White Sox haven't done it over a full season. But if we're going off a war or whatever they're using here, I, I, don't, understa I, I don't understand why the White Sox would be only projected for 83 wins. They had Lance Lynn, they have Dallas Keuchel, they have Giolito. That three is, you know, one of the best rotations, top of the rotations in baseball. I get that the rotation doesn't have a ton of depth, but Cease is a really good young pitcher. You'd have to imagine Kopech will come up this year and give them some quality innings. Rodone is an interesting option at the back end. They will find quality innings at the back end. The top of the rotations I mentioned is elite. Their bullpen is very, very good as well, and we've talked about this. You know, they brought in Hendricks to back up their closer position. They have Bummer, who's been fantastic. They have other quality arms as well. I think Foster's really underlooked. Hewer is also really underlooked. And mix in uh, Crochet also, who's been fantastic. I mean, he came up last year. He had, like, the Chris Sale effect. Was drafted and then comes directly to the big leagues pretty much and is just throwing bullets out of the back end of the bullpen. I think he'll be a huge role. So the rotation's very good. Their bullpen's very good. Their lineup is fantastic. I mean, they have a ton of young talent in the lineup. No doubt about that. And only time will tell. Again, these are just projections, so we'll have to wait and see how it pans out on the field. Yeah, absolutely, Max. I got a little harsh on Pakoda there, but, you know, they could make me look bad at the end of the year. Pakoda could be laughing at me as I, you know, cry myself to sleep over here. But, you know, we had a fun time with the show today. I always enjoy breaking down these moves, breaking down the projections. It was a lot of fun. We thank you guys for tuning in into Matanzerus. For Max Tanzer, I'm Ryan Medeiros. We hope you all have a fantastic week.